Hi, I'm Don Mackey, welcome to the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. This show is focused on providing strategies to empower community success and vitality. Each episode will feature interviews with cutting-edge rural development thought leaders and community practitioners, remarkable entrepreneurs from business, government, and nonprofits, and by sharing the learnings of E2 entrepreneurial ecosystems. Connect with me, learn more about E2, and subscribe to this show at energizingentrepreneurs.org. Welcome to Pathways to Rural Prosperity. I'm Shelley Pash, business specialist and ecosystem builder for Kansas Main Street. And I will be your host today. I'm joined by the incomparable Don Mackey with E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, hosted by Network Kansas. And Don has worked in the field of community economic development throughout North America for more than 40 years with a huge deepening focus on entrepreneur-led economic development. So hi, Don. Welcome. Well, hello, Shelley. I'm delighted to be with you again today, and I look forward to our conversation. Yes. Today, we're actually going to talk about LLC investing and entrepreneurial ecosystem building. So we'll dig in. Don, share with our listeners the major building blocks of high-impact rural community entrepreneurial ecosystems. Yeah, it's really interesting, Shelley. There's been a major uptick in interest. We're getting a half a dozen inquiries a week now from different parts of the country that I think part of it is coming out of COVID, folks are refocusing on development and there seems to be an energy. But let me frame it with two kinds of insights. The first is our friend Bob Stoll from Ord. His advice to other communities, particularly rural communities, that if you want to grow a more prosperous community, what are your top three actions? And I think this is informative to the ecosystem question. Bob says, number one, invest in leadership, empowering leadership that's going to engage your community in making it stronger and more competitive. Number two, be willing to invest. And that includes taxing yourself, mobilizing private capital, which is what we're talking about today. And then finally, commit to entrepreneur-focused economic development. I just, I love Bob's three pieces of advice because I think they're so foundational based on our experience. But to the ecosystem question, and not to go too deep because we've covered this in other podcasts, There's six basic elements today that I think are really important, but anchoring those six is the most important, and that is you got to focus on the entrepreneurial talent you have in your community or region. That's the starting point. That's the low-hanging fruit. You start there and you support them. And the elements of support are really kind of anchored around what we call the big three, One is human talent. That could be a key worker. If it's a growth business, that's building your team. But obviously, workforce is an important element today. Access to technology, while most rural entrepreneurial ventures are not tech businesses, but I know in your work with Main Street, how can, you know, that great cafe in a Main Street or downtown district utilize technology like online purchasing for pickup is really, really important today. Access to capital, which we'll talk more about. Access to technical assistance, both generic like feasibility studies and business planning, but also specialized. You know, how do you brand yourself? Networks. How do you use networking to get those entrepreneurs to the right resource at the right time at the right price? And then finally, community engagement. 
we've got to energize a larger segment of our community if we're going to support that. So those are the six building blocks. Obviously, capital is hugely important. And without it, it's very difficult to grow an entrepreneurial economy. Right. So, you know, you identify capital access and financial packaging as core ecosystem building blocks. And I couldn't agree more, 100%. First, this is going to be a little bit in depth of a question. So talk about why capital access is so important to supporting those entrepreneurs and growing a stronger and more diverse economy. And then second, earlier you mentioned financial packaging and packagers. So what are financial packages and why are those so important in generating more and better entrepreneurial deal flow? And of course, explain deal flow. (laughs) So let me start with your first question around capital access. And so let's kind of define that first of all. You know, if you are a startup business and you're wanting to, let's say, create a bakery shop, a coffee shop on Main Street, you're going to need capital. You're going to need capital to pay that lease on a building. You're going to have to buy equipment. You're going to have to buy goods and services. You're going to have to pay employees. You know, if you're a growth business and you're expanding, you even need different and more capital. And if it's that business transition, how do you help those new owners acquire an existing business, which might involve buying a building, uh, the fixtures, the inventory, those kinds of things. So in most capital access systems, and this is both urban and rural, is there's four sources of capital. The first is from the entrepreneur themselves. And, you know, the old adage, the three Fs. And I don't know, Shelly, if you remember the three (laughs) Fs, but it stands for family, friends, and and fool. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I have all of those. Yeah. And of course, when we think about family and particularly the entrepreneurs themselves, credit cards continue to be one of the primary ways to bring capital to nascent ventures. And so, and we know what that can do if you're not able to pay those credit card bills, the cost of capital gets very, very expensive. So the entrepreneurs have to bring capital to the deal. Obviously, a bank or a credit union relationship, maybe a line of credit, some money that's going to help pay the mortgage on a building acquisition is really important. So how do we get entrepreneurs in a strong banking relationship? Fortunately, in different parts of rural America, we still have community banks. Where we don't, we tend to have credit unions or other structures that can provide this kind of traditional bank financing. Lots of communities, every rural community worth its salt, should have some kind of gap financing where they have a fund and they have revolving loans. They can do forgivable grants based on performance. But even when you put those three together, oftentimes we still need a fourth source of capital. And that's kind of this LLC investor, limited liability corporation, where a group of higher net worth individuals come together and they provide either equity or patient loan capital that allows the deal to get done. And so we think about how do we energize all four sources of those capitals in the right combinations based on the kind of entrepreneur that we're working with and where they're developmentally. That's where we get into the financial packaging because we need someone, Shelley, to help that entrepreneur 
work with the various sources of capital to bring about that package that is properly structured, has a reasonable prospect that that capital can be paid for, ultimately amortized over time, that allows that entrepreneur to succeed. One of the biggest risks when we put together deals is to put that deal together so thin that there's no margin for error. And what we know with any kind of entrepreneur, whether it's an existing business growing or a startup or a transition, there are going to be times where things don't go the way they should. You know, you buy the building, everything looks great, and then you realize that there's deficiencies in the roof, and now you got to put a new roof on the building, and you're looking at significant additional capital needs. That becomes important. And we certainly see that, right, with when you mentioned capital access and those individuals that know the entrepreneur on a local level, right? And that actually helps with the trust factor. And I know you had mentioned about community banks too. So you have that aspect of it where you have to have those people that can go into the community and talk one-on-one with those entrepreneurs. And if you're fortunate enough to have a foundation, right, that's imperative on shifting their budgets to local and, you know, which strengthens their roles in improving the community itself and the economic outcomes. And yeah. And I mean, just having local impact investing. And I know we've talked about that before and I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit more, but yeah, it's, it's just imperative that things like that are working on a local level and, you know, having that LLC can certainly benefit communities just make them so much more viable. Yeah, and and let me kind of illustrate this again, going back to our org case study, which you and I have talked about in some of our previous podcasts, and just kind of illustrate how this can work at a high performing level. So the local economic developer, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on Trevor. He's since moved on, but he was really good at this. And Trevor, as the community's paid economic developer, played two roles. One was he was a networker. So he was out there talking to entrepreneurs and networking them to resources. But he was also really adept at financial packaging. And in this particular case, he knew all the local banks and who the loan officers were. He worked closely with the city and their revolving loan fund that could provide gap financing. But he also had a relationship with a network of higher net worth equity investors. And, you know, they had a an investors club. And But Trevor knew these folks and he knew how to reach out to them to say, I've got a deal where we need a little more punch. We don't have enough to put together a viable deal unless somebody can come in and buy that building and lease it back until that entrepreneur can really get up on their feet, generate revenues and begin to buy that building back. And so Trevor played that role. And if you think about it, over the 20 years, if we look at 2000 to 2020, most of this has happened in the last 10 years. This community of 2000 in a region of 10,000 through their, you know, just the loans that they did with their revolving loan fund did almost $100 million of deal flow, almost 100 deals. And in many of those, not all of them, these LLC investors came together and go, ah, we're going to bring that 
additional piece of capital so that not only do we do this deal, but it is a better deal that gives us enough margin so that if something goes wrong, we're not going to fail. And, you know, that becomes really important because it's one thing to generate deal flow. It's another to generate it in a way, Kelly, that, or Shelly. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I'll answer to whatever yeah, I get. I know, I know. <laughs> I was talking with a friend whose name is Kelly. <laughs> Kelly, yeah. And popped into my brain. But we want these deals to be put together where they have a higher probability of success and a lower risk level. That contributes to community success. We never want to set up an entrepreneur with a deal so thin that there is a higher probability that they're going to fail, knowing the uncertainty that we have in business. Right. So very good on the financial packaging and even the packagers and the deal flow. So I think you got all my questions in that one. That was perfect. So can you share a little bit more with our listeners, some of the examples from rural America of the LLC investor groups or investor plays and maybe an entrepreneur story or two? You bet. You know, what's interesting is the more we kind of dig and learn about some of these local entrepreneurial ecosystems, the more we discover that these LLC investor groups are really active. They're working in affordable housing, child care, grocery stores, you know, communities that need a good motel. Clearly very active with Main Street businesses that have that prominent building location in the downtown district, and you really want to keep that building in an active use. And so let me share a few examples. Again, I'm going to take us back to Ord, but we could talk about communities in Kansas, Oregon, Minnesota, where this activity is at play. But in this particular case, this was a major Main Street business. Occupied two buildings on the courthouse square, that kind of classic downtown organized around a courthouse and a park. It was in transition. This is a business that was founded in the 1880s as a saddle shop, Misco's. And over the years, it evolved into a recreational business selling sporting goods and kayaks because there's some kayaking rivers. There's a reservoir, the Calamus, that's close. But over time, the Misco family kind of moved on, sold the business. The owner that had had it kind of was losing ground, but there were two young employees, a husband and wife team in their late 20s that wanted to buy the business. But as a young couple, they didn't have a lot of capital, but they did go to their family and they brought some capital into the deal. And, you know, they had a bank relationship, but the bank wouldn't swing the full loan to buy the building, the inventory, the fixtures, all of that. And the city, through their revolving loan fund, was willing to come in. But again, it wasn't enough. So three investors came together, an attorney, a serial entrepreneur who works in the retail space, and an accountant, all higher net worth people, said, you know, we would not only be willing to invest, but they were also willing to serve as mentors for these new owners. So the major thing is that made the deal work is these three investors says, we'll buy the buildings, we'll buy the fixtures, and we'll buy the motor vehicles because they had a business, an e-commerce business that sold 
sporting goods to clubs and high schools and, and in a multi-county region. And they said, what we'll do is we'll lease back these assets to you until such time that you are up on your feet and you're generating sufficient revenues and then you can buy us back. So whenever you have LLC investors, any kind of equity investors, you need an exit strategy. But in their case, they were saying, you know, we want to get our money back. We would like to get a modest return on investment. In their case, they're using liquid assets, cash assets. And we can talk more about that because it's a huge opportunity. And we've run some data for a number of communities as to how much capital is in this kind of non-interest bearing cash accounts. And that's where these LLC investors pulled the money. But in offering to be mentors, this was a risk management strategy Mm -hmm. for them because Mm -hmm. they're saying, if you'll work with us, we will help you sharpen your skills so that you know the art and science of successful rural retail. Because again, not only did they want this business to succeed, they want these entrepreneurs to succeed, but they also wanted to protect their capital. I mean, these are still prudent people, they're high net worth There's a reason why they got high net worth, right? (laughs) Exactly. And (laughs) so that was part of the deal. But what it did happen is this young couple was able to get into business. They got their bank loan. They got their financing from the community bank. They ultimately paid their family back. And over time, within a few years, they were able to buy back the building, the fixtures and the assets, which had been upgraded. But I would argue that that finance was critical, but the mentoring was also very, very critical. Yes, yes, yes. We definitely know that mentors are very important. Like you said, I mean, it's they're just wanting you to succeed, right? And we always tell, whenever we're talking to entrepreneurs, they always want to tell their story and they always want to share their story and just help you succeed and go over those things that didn't necessarily work the best for them. So you can avoid that. So any more on that investor and the LLC investors as mentors? Yeah. And maybe before I go there, let me just kind of share the numbers because I really do think this is a bit of a secret. We don't realize just how much wealth there is in rural America. And so let me share two very specific examples. One from my home state of Nebraska. So this is statewide. You want to take a guess at how much household (laughs) money is in largely non-interest bearing accounts, money markets, savings accounts, checking accounts in Nebraska. Want to take a guess at how much money is just sitting in- No, I don't want to be, I don't want to just, you know, shoot the moon and- (laughs) Yeah. I will wait in bated breath. Okay, so for our national audience, Nebraska has about 2 million people. It's not the richest state in America by any stretch. Households in 2021, according to Esri, which is a national market research firm, estimate that the non-interest or small interest bearing cash accounts or assets of Nebraska households is $13 billion. That's B with a billion dollars. Wow. B yeah. with a billion. Yeah. And so if just 5% of that was somehow mobilized to make these kinds of investments along the lines of the story I just shared... That would create a fund of $650 million. Oh, my gosh. And if we think about if we did 
on average, deals with $100,000 of investment, helping buy a building, buy inventory, whatever, that would be 6,500 deals, 6,500 deals. And if you think about it, Shelley, this money recycles. And so if you think about a generation or 25 years, this money could turn over two, three, maybe four times and could just create a tremendous amount of deal flow or contribute to deal flow. If we want to look at a more rural, you're familiar with Republic County, Kansas, up in north central Kansas, rural yes, by I any am. stretch. Yes, yes, yes. You know, in the entire county, there's less than 4,000 residents. But in this county, again, there's $27 million, according to Esri, that are in these cash accounts. And if we use our rule of thumb that let's just take 5% and put it into these kinds of equity investments, patient capital, that would create 1.35 million in loan and investment opportunities. Again, thinking about, in this case, probably a $50,000 deal, maybe a little bit smaller. You're looking at somewhere upwards to 30 deals. And again, that could recycle two, three, four times over a 25-year period. For a county like this, that is a lot of deal flow. Yes. And it, you know, and this is why we always say you focus on your youth, you know, as well. I mean, there's your future, just like the song says. It's just if it's there, it's a there's just gotta be a way to tap into that. Yeah, and I think that's huge. I mean, what we know from the Ord story, Shelley, is over time, as Ord has supported more businesses through its various ecosystem supports, the average age of business ownership has continued to drop over the last 20 years. And so they're successfully transitioning businesses, they're successfully starting new businesses, they're successfully growing existing businesses. But to your point, we're looking at newer generations that are now in the driver's seat. They have a lot of energy. Not that those of us who are in our 60s don't, <laughs> but we, uh, you know, we're, we're not looking. It's a different to... kind of energy. <laughs> exactly. And, and so they're very creative. They're very innovative. They're trying to create a career and a life for themselves and their families. They care deeply about their employees. And that's part of the dynamic that we see in communities that are supporting entrepreneurs is it's allowing younger generations and particularly with equity capital. If you think about young people who don't have deep family pockets, this is a way for them to get into business that maybe otherwise they never could because they just don't have the collateral to borrow a lot of money. They need some equity investment and that creates a pathway for young people to cut their teeth and to succeed as entrepreneurs. Yes. And be able to, you know, hang out their shingles, so to speak. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. So let me talk about the mentors. I don't want to lose yes. that before we, we wrap up. So again, going back to our org story with Miscos, again, I said there were three LLC investors, an attorney, an accountant, um, and a serial, and a serial entrepreneur. entrepreneur. <laughs> I was listening. <laughs> and, you know, as part of the deal, they said, let us help you. And I'm going to just focus on the serial entrepreneur. This individual, multiple retail businesses, trucking company, I mean, just an amazing business person. 
And he really has deep experience. And so he sat down with this couple and said, here's all the tricks in retail. First of all, we need to institute point of sales technology at the cash register. And of course, you're probably familiar with this from Main Street, but that's an ability to track what is selling and what isn't selling, to give you that kind of intelligence that says, boy, what are we moving and what kinds of margins do we have on the products and services that we are moving? And so that was one investment. And these LLC investors said, we'll help you buy that technology and we'll teach you how to use it. So this became part of their monthly routine where the accountant would sit down with them and say, let's get out your point of sales reports and let's look at what is moving. Well, they quickly discovered that they had way too much debt inventory. And you know, for our audience, debt inventory is products that you're trying to sell that nobody's buying. <laughs> right. And you don't it's want the it. stuff you move to the back of the store. <laughs> exactly. Right. Or you get rid of. And so yes. they launched a bunch of sales to say, let's get rid of this inventory and let's stock our shelves. Let's get in our back room inventory that people do want to buy. And of course, that means you're going to have more turnover, you're going to have more revenues, you're going to have better margins because you're kind of playing to those things that have a little better profitability. But they also taught them how to do discount purchasing. So, you know, make sure that you've got enough cash reserves so that when your suppliers say, if you'll buy X amount at this point in time, we'll give you a discount, which means for the retailer, more margin. You're going to make a little more money on that. And so there was a whole set of retailing tactics that, number one, this serial entrepreneur taught them. And then the accountant worked with them to say, this should be part of our monthly rituals to look at these reports and to begin to say, because you're doing point of sale information, because you're moving inventory with greater margins, look at your bottom line. And now you can start to pay off that building purchase uh, and move that from a lease to an actual asset, which means now you can go to the bank with collateral and strengthen your bank financing that allows you to support further growth. And so this is really important. Now, not every investor wants to be a mentor. Not every investor is a good mentor, but every community has folks like these three individuals. And given half a chance, they are willing to share what they know. I think about my good friend, Jim Jenkins. You know, he's a rancher in central Nebraska, but also a serial entrepreneur in the restaurant franchising business. And he has a number of shops in Kearney, which is in central Nebraska, one of those, you know, micropolitan cities that anchors a huge rural region. And Jim has always said to anyone who wants to go into the cafe or restaurant business, I'll sit down with you and share the secrets of my, of my success. And, you know, most people don't because they go, well, he's a competitor. Why would he share? And part of it is he believes that if Carney has stronger restaurant offerings, that's going to be good for his business because it becomes that destination community where people want to come. So part of it is the entrepreneur has to be willing to accept some help and the community needs to find those folks with knowledge who are also good mentors, not telling the entrepreneur what to do, but sharing the tricks of the trade and educating yes. them on how to yes. be good.
just like we were saying earlier, they want to share their stories. And yeah, competition is not a bad thing. It's never a bad thing. Yep, exactly. That's why we have you step uh, up your game, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's why there's pharmacies. You know, you'll see two or three on the same corner in a city. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been enlightening and, you know, just even tapping a little bit on business succession and how necessary that is and, you know, ringing those registers and getting rid of dead inventory and mentors. This has been just, right up my alley. I love it. <laughs> just love it. So thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, you bet, Shelly. Always happy to do it. Well, it's always my pleasure. And why don't you share with the listeners how they can learn more about the LLC investing and entrepreneurial ecosystems? You bet. Well, for those of you that are regular podcast listeners, this is going to be review, but you know your go-to resources are website, energizingentrepreneurs.org. There's a whole set of free resources that you can access there. You can join our E2 National Practitioners Network and access even more resources on how you can build an entrepreneurial ecosystem ecosystem like you find in Ord, Nebraska that we've talked so much about. Of course, our monthly electronic newsletter, easy to subscribe to, easy to unsubscribe, but that's your go-to resource because that's where you're going to learn each month about new resources that we have procured or developed. And then, of course, you can sign up on your favorite platform for our Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. For this particular podcast, we're going to reshare a couple of resources that we've talked about before and a brand new one, of course, our Entrepreneurial Ecosystems, Four Decades of Lessons paper that kind of gives you the framework that we talked about early on. We're going to reissue and share our Capital Access System paper, really focusing on how Network Kansas has created massive capital access for entrepreneurs throughout the Sunflower State. And again, Shelly, congratulations on the University of Kansas's final Woo-hoo! four win of yes, the NCAA basketball. I think they're still reeling from all of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we're going to release a special paper focusing on LLC investor groups. So those will be the resources that Anne will make available when we drop this podcast. Perfect. So I do have to actually tell you too, I was at a conference last week and I had, I'm not exaggerating, five people come up to me and it, you know, this is the first time that we've gotten out there a whole lot in this, you know, in this setting. And oh my gosh, they were like, oh, I feel like I've seen you. Oh, I've listened to your podcast. And I had two people say that. And then later on in the day, I had three more people. I'm like, well, that's good. So it's getting out there, energizingentrepreneurs.com, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, well, .org. No, .org. .org. Yes, yes. Sorry. (laughs) Nope, that's fine. So, obviously, always my pleasure and it has been absolutely great to have you as my guest and all our best to you and your efforts and everyone listening to grow a stronger rural America, one community at a time. Thank you, Don. Thank you so much and take care. You bet. Thanks, Shelly. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Head on over to energizingentrepreneurs.org where you can subscribe to this podcast and tap into more than 25 years of field experience from E2 Entrepreneurial Ecosystems. I'm Don Mackey, and I'll see you next time on Pathways to Rural Prosperity podcast. Mm -hmm.